Let's start with those guys. We're going to, we always begin and end with gratitude. So let's, do they still have it? Okay, there we go. Let's thank the guys from the Windy Saddle for taking care of us. They, they always treat us right, and they promote our events. Um, we also want to thank goldentoday.com. It is a local news site. It's really awesome. If you haven't been there, go to their website. Sign up for all kinds of information and news about everything going on in Golden, goldentoday.com. And they are always great to us and promote our events as well. Um, a few things I want to make sure I hit. We got new T-shirts. Huh? These are brand new. They're, um, they're available for a donation to Golden Beer Talks of $15. And tonight we're not set up for credit cards. So if you'd like a t-shirt, we are happy to sell you one for cash or check. And then, uh, and for a million dollars, of course. And then next month we'll have credit card capability. And they'll be the same price. And then they'll go up in price after that. So do your Christmas shopping early. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk real quick about format. So the way this works, Jim's going to come up after our beer ambassador makes his comments, and he's going to give a 20-minute talk, and we're going to set the questions aside until after that. We'll take a little break after his talk, and then we'll come back for Q&A. So first, I'm going to bring up our beer ambassador, Frank Blaha, who makes so much of this possible and works so hard at it. Frank. Yeah, okay. Well, and so, Frank Blaha with Golden Beer Talks, and I don't have one of our T-shirts on because we're all, always supposed to be uh, representing the breweries. And so, you know, just... <laughs> different branding. But anyway, this, this month we're featuring Cannonball Creek Brewery, and they're up there at the north end of Washington, 393 North Washington Avenue. And... Um, I went, and as almost always is typical, I went and had to test the beers. And I got up there, and I found one or two, you know, and I thought, oh, this is pretty good, that's pretty good. And then I tried this Mean Mug Coffee Porter, and I thought, that is awesome. That is a fantastic beer. And then, it's a little more expensive, that's why they're $6 a pint tonight. And then I thought, well, that would go great with this Trump Hands IPA which is a gold medal winning beer at the Great American Beer Festival. And so those were the two beers that uh, I I selected Sunday night. And um, I had hoped to bring 12 growlers, six of each. And today at 11, they called me up and they're like, well, we can really only afford to give you 10. We're not going to be able to give you 12 because I thought we might have a crowd here tonight. So I hope that you guys like the beer, those that have tried it. Mean Mug Coffee Porter, 5.5% ABV. And kind of a nice, sweet, little, little on the sweet side porter with a little bit of coffee flavor. I just thought it was a fantastic set of flavors. And then the Trump Hands IPA is almost like a dry hopped IPA. Nice hop forward. Session ale, relatively low in alcohol. So Cannonball Creek, they're always busy up there. It was a big crowd on Sunday. And they've won lots of awards. And if they haven't won an award for the Mean Mug Coffee Porter, I'm sure they're going to. <laughs> And uh, the Trump Hands IPA, they've already won a gold medal on that one. And with that, I don't actually have a beer factoid for you this time, but last month I had forgotten to mention 
we had some speakers that talked about Platte River Recovery Program and the Colorado uh, Endangered Fish, Re Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program. These were some speakers a while ago, but at the uh, Colorado Water Congress in late January, it was announced by the Fish and Wildlife Service that for the first time in 20 years in the um, San Juan River Basin, they have an uh, uh, endangered fish recovery program in the San Juan River Basin there in the Four Corners area. But last year, for the first time in 20 years that they've been doing this, they had the Colorado pike minnow uh, spawning and reproducing naturally in the San Juan River Basin. So I just thought I'd pass that on. And with that, back to Whitney. And thank you for the gratifyingly large crowd. Indeed. If you are wanting a t-shirt and you want someone to throw some money at, I would say give it to Tracy over here. And the t-shirts are in the back. Wait. <laughs> Before we get started, I, um, I want to also give a shout out to Mia Sullivan, who's in our crowd tonight, is one of our former speakers and is a stalwart attendee of this event um, because she actually recruited our speaker this month. And I'm just going <laughs> to, so thank you, Mia. Yeah, and, and I'm not going to belabor the introduction. You guys obviously know a little bit about it, or you wouldn't have crowded up the room so much. 24 years with the Associated Press. Let's see. Where's Barb? Aha. Uh -huh. Do we need some help with this projector, or are we good? Do that thing you did where you got the lamp Do the magic thing, Barb. <laughs> Barb's going to come up here and get the projection going, and Jim's going to give the talk. Sorry, I'm only one-dimensional. <laughs> Bart only does audio. <laughs> here we go. Right. I, I promise, folks, this will not be death by PowerPoint. Six slides, right? I'll try to be sprightly and humorous and, and mostly appropriate. All right, so... Nah, I don't So, uh, my name's Jim Clark. I'm the regional director uh, for the Associated Press for this part of the country. Been a journalist for... What year is this? 30 years. Holy cow, am I old. Holy cow. Um, so fake news. Fake news is the topic tonight, but as I thought about this, I was wrestling with this fake news, fake news. God, what a stupid term. Fake news is just a lie. It's just propaganda. You don't need a special term for it. What we're really, really talking about is media literacy, as in, are you going to be a smart news consumer? Do you know how? Do you know what a credible news source is? How do you know what a credible news source is? What do you read? Do you force yourself to read things you disagree with? All of these ideas. So, so I wrestled with that as I was putting this presentation together. And then I came across this, which some of you have probably seen in your social media feeds, right? 
the reason I like this, I, I don't subscribe to everything on this, on this uh, slide. I don't agree with all of it. The reason I really like it is my employer, yes? Okay. Eat the mic. The reason I really like this is that... <laughs> Hello, Golden! Yeah! <laughs> We're, we're wild stallions. <laughs> the reason I really like this is that my employer, who I've worked for for 24 years, is right in the middle where it's supposed to be, right? The AP. We throw fastballs, we throw them over the plate, we don't carry water for anybody. And it makes people cranky all the time on both sides of the spectrum. Now, there are other things on this uh, chart that I don't disagree with. I mean, this is a cheap shot to Vox right here. I like Vox. Vox deals with data and analysis, and I don't think they have much of a liberal bent. So that was kind of a cheap, cheap shot. And I have friends who work at the New York Post. Okay, it's the New York Post, but you have to understand New York City tabloids to understand where they're coming from. So I thought that was a bit of a cheap shot for the Post. Uh, and my wife and I, Jennifer Forker over there, actually met in the newsroom of the newspapers that became the, the Examiner newspapers. That's right. I was covering Fairfax County, Virginia government and politics, and she was a lifestyles uh, editor. And every afternoon at deadline, I would pretend to be reading the New York Times. And really what I'd be doing is this, looking, looking at her legs. <laughs> add, add beer, you know, 24 years later, here we are. <laughs> Let me grab my notes here. So, so let's, let's agree on some ground rules here, first of all. This is a smart crowd. I can tell about half of you are probably on the minds faculty, right? About half of you? So let's agree that there is this thing called objective reality, that there are facts in the world that are knowable, things that are knowable and factual. I mean, let's not talk about... Schrodinger's cat, let's not talk about the multiverse, let's not talk about quantum physics. There are things that are knowable in this world, okay? And reality, much like Mother Nature, and this is the thing that it boggles my mind when I hear politicians just make stuff up. Reality always bats last. It does, right? Just like Mother Nature. Eventually, if the scientists are right, this planet's going to be about eight degrees hotter. Yeah, that'll be sporty. That'll be fun. Uh, it doesn't matter what you think. The math is the math. The science is the science. Sorry. So, all right. Objective reality exists. Things are knowable. Um, and the term fake news, as I said earlier, is um, it's just wearing on me. It's getting old. It's been, it's been clubbed like a baby seal the past six months. Um, <laughs> So uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's just narrow what we're talking about here. As I said, fake news is horse hockey, right? It's, but, but it's a pernicious kind of, of propaganda. It's a pernicious kind of lie because so frequently things that are just demonstrably false and yet eaten with a big spoon by some people, just chow down on, 
they like it because it, it has this thin layer of truth about it, right? So it's like a, think of it like a cupcake, the fake news cupcake. Nice, sweet frosting on top. And then the batter is actually made with horse manure, which is kind of awkward. <laughs> so, so here's an example of what I'm talking about, and you, you guys all know this. So it turns out that Barack Obama was born in Kenya. He was born in Kenya. You know how we know this? Because his father was Kenyan, so ipso facto. You know, e purplis unum, right? He's Kenyan. And there was a vast number of people in this country who believed that. Believe that in spite of these two significant factual headwinds, there was no evidence supporting it. And in fact, there was a massive amount of evidence that didn't support it. Like, if you get in your time machine and go back to August of 1961 and you pick up the two newspapers that were in Honolulu at the time, the Star and the Advertiser, oh look, there's his birth announcement. Oh, and it's on microfilm still. In my business, we call those Facts, yes. And yet, this thing happened. Oh, my God. People believed this. I, 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 I'm gobsmacked. My gob is smacked, right? I, so that happened. And then we had a presidential election. That was a good time. <laughs> but and here's another important thing to say about fake news. Here's what it's not. It's not a news story that is otherwise accurate but hurts your feelings, that makes you sad, Okay. Trust me, I know this. I'm a Red Sox fan, okay? I've had to read a lot of sad news stories in my 51 years about my favorite baseball team. I don't want to hear about the Cubs. Our team won the World Series. Whatever. <laughs> All right. <laughs> all right, all right, so let's, let's further define the problem. Let's define this problem. As I said, okay, brace yourselves, tighten up your girdles, folks, fancy phrase alert. This is the best phrase I've heard to describe the behavior that allows for fake news to pollute the ecosystem, and it's epistemic closure. It's, as I say there, confirmation bias on steroids. Here's what epistemic closure is, and we are all guilty of it to a certain extent, and it relates to the idea that fact new, uh, false news is not news that hurts your feelings. Epistemic closure is you only accept information from a closed bubble. You only go to news sources that make you feel good, that confirm your prejudices. This is not a good way to behave in a republic. This is not a good way to behave in a self-governing republic. If you are a liberal, you should be reading the National Review. You should be reading it. You have to understand how people who don't agree with you on public policy think, because they're not dopes. Likewise, if you think you're a conservative, you should be reading Daily Coast. You should be reading Talking Points Memo. You should be reading the New York Times editorial page. You should be. It makes you a better citizen. So epistemic closure is the idea that you live in a bubble and facts you don't like cannot get into that bubble. It's bad. And here's where it came from. There isn't anybody in this audience who's younger than, say, 30, is there? Just, yeah. <laughs> All right, young lady. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you back in time. Even 
before the Teletubbies, before the Power Rangers. Back to 1987, there was a guy, <laughs> there was a guy named Ronald Reagan who was president. You may have heard of him. He was a movie star. The, he appointed some folks to the Federal Communications Commission who did a thing called repealing the Fairness Doctrine. Here's what the Fairness Doctrine said. It said, if you have a license to broadcast on the public airwaves, and all the airwaves are owned by the public, right? TV stations, radio stations, you have to allow for multiple points of view in political conversation. That was the Fairness Doctrine. Sometimes confused with the Equal Time Doctrine, they're about the same thing. But if you're going to use the public's airwaves, you had to let all the voices, reasonable voices, um, use those airwaves in order to keep your license. Well, in 1987, the FCC repealed that because they concluded, maybe it was a little early, but they were eventually right, that there were so many other channels of information available that that wasn't necessary anymore. So that led to talk radio. The explosion in AM talk radio came directly from that. That's Rush Limbaugh's business model is I don't have to labor under the Fairness Doctrine anymore. Boom. Made a pile of money. It was a great business plan. And that led to the rise of all manner of partisan media, which is where epistemic closure comes from, and that's why I'm here today. Right? That's where we are. So, that's the history lesson. Okay. So, what's real news? I'll show you what real news is. This is the slide with the most words on it, I swear. Okay? <laughs> but I came across this reading CJR a couple of weeks ago. And um, CJR is the Columbia Journalism, Columbia Journalism Review. It's the... Um, it's a trade mag. It's the trade magazine for my industry, right? Columbia University, New York, 116th Street. It's a really cool neighborhood. Um, here's here are the standards that we adhere to as real reporters. We obviously accuracy is the paramount thing. Getting things wrong is bad. Facts matter, and they're real things. Um, and you follow a story no matter who it pisses off. And it may piss off a lot of people. It frequently pisses off people. That may be the point of the story, is to piss people off, and that's okay. Um, you develop a list of sources in your reporting that are legitimate sources. So as, I say up on, uh, as it says on this slide, if you want to know what the unemployment rate is, you don't ask your barber. You ask the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's what they do. They don't get it wrong, despite what you may have heard. They don't. <laughs> and, you know, and as it says there, casualty list, the Department of Defense. You want to know about toxic release inventory, which is a fun annual story about how polluted the air is. You go to the EPA. These are good sources. This is what you do. Hmm? Oh, you're... You're such cynics, you, you people. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You must be in mining. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, my God. Uh, and here's the, the other tricky part that, that is the dead tell if you are dealing with a news site that's not legit. They are not representing a multiplicity of viewpoints. You have to ask 
every reasonable person in, in a controversy. Climate change is a great example. Um, there are people who are funded by the fossil fuel industry who have a point of view. We talk to them when we write about climate change. However, we also say in our copy, and this is a decision the AP made a few years ago, that the vast majority of scientists think, uh, you know, have concluded that climate change is a real thing for these reasons. You know, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It, heat, it traps heat. The uh, level of CO2 in the atmosphere is 400 parts per million now and climbing, and that's a, said to be a bad level. And Flatulent apostles? What is that? <laughs> and here, here's the other, the other thing that professional reporters do that hacks don't do, and that's pursue evidence and leads that run counter to your hunches. Because let's face it, when you're a reporter and you have an idea for a story, you start with a hunch. You start with assumptions. I think the world is this way. Let's find out. If you find evidence that the world isn't that way, you've got to run down that alley and, and figure out what's what. That's what real reporters do. That's what the New York Times does. That's what the Washington Post does. That's what the LA Times does. That's what the Associated Press does, okay? That's not what some other sites do, some other outfits do. And most of them pay the AP money, so I'm not gonna be slagging our customers. <laughs> okay. So why does this matter? Right? This is a question that every editor I have ever worked with asked me about a story, and I have asked every reporter I ever manage. Yeah, so what? Who cares? Why is this a story? Tell me why it matters. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, let, let me unpack this quote a little bit, which I really love. Everybody knows who George Orwell is, right? Everyone knows George. How many people read Brave New World, Aldous Huxley? Most of you, right? So you remember the drug in that book, Soma? Soma, right? It was, what did they call that? It was the ideal pleasure drug, is what it was called in that book. And that's what, that's what we're up against here. We've got so many digital distractions in our life that, you know, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but it may already be too late for entire generations of people to actually focus on what's real and what isn't because there are so many distractions. Huxley might be right, you know? How many people have teenagers? Ever see him read a book? <laughs> I mean, you got to force them, right? It's threats of violence to read a book. So, all right. That's why the ability to discern real news from fake news matters. You have to be an educated citizen of this republic. You have to understand how the world really is, not how you want it to be, right? So I'll explain this in a minute. You guys remember uh, the president gave a speech maybe two or three weeks ago? It was his joint address to Congress. It was the stand-in for the State of the Union that, you know, brand new presidents do. So I come from this little textile town, this washed-up textile town in Rhode Island. It's called West Warwick. It's, uh, it's not much to look at, and living there is even worse, okay? But it's home, and everybody's from somewhere. 
And like most of you, I have connected and kept in touch with friends on Facebook, right? So I have a friend back home in West Warwick who's kind of conservative, kind of, he's really conservative, okay? And this fascinated me. As I was thinking about how to do this presentation, he gave me this amazing gift, and now I owe him beers for it. <laughs> and he's going to call me on it. Um, he posted on Facebook this, this, a link to this story. It turns out that when the, the, the widow of the seal who died in that Yemen raid in, in the, the third week of January, fourth week of January, when she was introduced, it turns out the Democratic members of Congress didn't stand up and applaud. Okay, think about that. If you're a journalist, if you're a reporter, if you think like me, the first thing you think of is, that's, no, that's impossible. These are professional politicians. That's what we call a massive unforced error in politics. Politicians don't behave, human beings don't behave this way. How can this be true? So I asked him, how do you know this? And, and he said, well, just read the piece. And, I, and he said this, this blew me away and clarified this issue for me. He said, I watched that speech. I saw it live on TV that they didn't stand up and clap. He, that, he saw this. And I'm not, this is the pernicious thing. That is a real memory in his brain. That exists in his head, okay? And who am I to say that that memory doesn't exist in his head and that's not how he perceived it? That's how he perceived it. And here's why he perceived it that way. We have become so tribal in our politics that in order for my friend to make sense of the world as he needs to, to go day to day, the people who disagree with him politically have to be monsters. They have to be monsters in order for him to make sense of the world. Now, there isn't a person in this room who hasn't made the same mistake. Your political opponents have to behave like monsters, don't you, in order to, to, to feel better about your position. Oh my God, what have we done? Oh my God. I mean, you know, this is obviously, it's not true. And my reporter instinct immediately kicked in and I knew it wasn't true. So I posted, you know, in his, in his Facebook timeline, I said, look, at, look, Snopes looked at this. Here's Snopes' explanation. And I didn't capture it, but it says false down below. Because it's false. Because, my God, this is not how politicians behave. But he didn't believe Snopes. So where am I? You don't believe the Associated Press. You don't believe the New York Times. You don't believe Snopes. This is, this is cognitive bias. This is an indication that our wetware is faulty, okay? As a species, our wetware, that's what I call what's in our noggins, is, is broken or it has never really worked right. And I suspect, I've done a little reading on this, I suspect it is a, an evolutionary response. You have to, in order to survive on the, on the gelt, on the savanna of Africa and outrun the cheetah and not get at, you have to make instant decisions whether they're right or wrong, you have to act. And I think that's where cognitive bias comes from. I, I could be wrong. Is there an evolutionary biologist in the house? Huh? Right. 
Yeah, it's we're tribal. We're tribal now. So this, I read this definition of, of cognitive bias. It's 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 the idea of subjective social reality that comes from you, you perceive the world through your own prejudice per, perceptions, and you have this view of reality that is subjective, and we all do it. Um, you know, a classic example is, and we're living through it right now, is when the stock market is really going gangbusters, and you're in the market and you're making money, who's a financial genius? Who's got two thumbs and is a financial genius? This guy, yeah, baby. Out of the way, Janet Yellen, I'm the next Federal Reserve Chairman. Yeah, baby. Uh, who remembers like 2004, 2005? Everybody had a friend who's like, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to be a day trader. It's awesome, right? 2009, he's living on the streets, right? That's cognitive bias. So, so my poor friend who I'm picking on here. As I said, he needs, he needs his political enemies to be monsters, and we have all behaved that way in, in moments of frustration, haven't we? Come on. You can t I'm your friend. You can tell me. <laughs> all right. So, so this is a problem. I think I've identified a problem. How do we fix it? Oh, here's the bad part. The bad part is... You have to work to fix it. It's on you. Because you can't be a functioning citizen in a republic, in a self-governing republic, and be a hammerhead and be a dope. Sorry. You have to read. You have to read across the political spectrum. You have to absorb information and understand it in context. You have to have this rare ability today. You have to hold two diametrically opposed ideas in your head at the same time. That's hard, right? And you have to think. So, who remembers the, the movie, um, was that George Clooney movie, where he uh, was about Edward R. Murrow, Good Night and Good Luck? You remember Good Night and Good Luck? So, in grad school, the guy who George Clooney played in that movie is a guy named Fred Friendly from Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, baby. Shout out to my friend Dot in the back. <laughs> Fred Friendly uh, was a professor of mine at uh, Columbia. A great guy. He was at the end of his career. He was Edward R. Murrow's producer for that, for that series on Joe McCarthy, the See It Now uh, thing that they did in 1954 that was the final nail in McCarthy's coffin. So he, taught, he helped teach the ethics class at Columbia. That's right. Journalists have ethics. I learned them. And he used to get up and say, I'm going to give you ethical problems that are so hard, problems that are so difficult to solve, that the only way you can fix them is to think. And that's the best lesson I learned at that school. It's maybe the only thing I remember from that school. The other thing I remember is, here's the great irony about that movie. George Clooney, kind of a hunk. The chicks dig him, right? Fred Friendly was as ugly as sin. I mean, fell out of the ugly tree, hit every branch on the way to the ground. George Clooney played him. I howled when I saw that. <laughs> so let me leave you with this. Read, think, expose yourself to ideas that are uncomfortable, and then vote. And use that First Amendment. It's my favorite amendment. Okay? That's what I got.
<laughs> All right, thanks. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back for Q&A. But if you need a little snack, or I don't know if we have any more beer, um, but we'll come back in a few minutes here. Thanks, guys. That was awesome, yeah. I think while we are just hanging around, hanging around, thinking about beer, 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 beer. I um, nice, Carl. We're gonna tee up the Q and A, and um, I think in every other way. Uh, Jim is, is well prepared for his appearance at Golden Beer Talks, but I will say that we made this plan, plan in January, and yet he still showed up having given up beer for Lent. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure about that plan. <laughs> so we, we owe him a beer. But I think while we're going ahead with um, some extra beers and such, we're going to go ahead and get started on Q&A because I think we're going to have a lot of questions tonight. So... If you want some beers, feel free, and please do your commerce. Um, but we'll also get Jim started on some Q&A, I think. Cool. Okay, what do you got, brother? So I understand some news outlets are, have decided to not report on tweets and only on actions. What is your opinion of that? Repeat the question. Some news organizations have decided not to report on what they see on Twitter and wait to verify it themselves is really... Uh, yeah, that's a little problematic when the President of the United States is using Twitter to communicate with the world. That's the problem, right? By definition, what the President says is news. Right? That's a pretty good working definition of covering that beat. So here's how this works. When it's breaking news on Twitter, and by the way, I work for the Associated Press. It used to be Twitter before Twitter, right? You guys, you guys didn't know something was happening until me or one of my colleagues pressed the F12 key on our keyboard. And then Twitter came along and ruined it! <laughs> um... What actually happens in uh, in the interface between Twitter and news organization, reputable news organizations, is this: in the case of the president, if he tweets something, we look at it. If we think it's newsworthy, and most of it is these days, we will report that this happened on. He said this on Twitter. If it's breaking news, we verify it ourselves, and. Perversely, what, what I've heard from folks all over the country is, thank God for the Associated Press, because I saw it on Twitter, but I didn't believe it until I saw the news alert move, right? So in a weird way, it reinforces our value. Um, but we get beat all the time. I mean, two examples. Whitney Houston, that was tweeted three hours before we moved the news alert, and it was accurate. She was good and dead. She wouldn't get any, any more dead. Um... Uh, the Bin Laden raid in Pakistan. Some guy who lived next door to the compound or a couple of miles away tweeted, strange helicopter activity. Sounds like American helicopters or something like that. Like eight hours before Obama had his news conference. We got, we got lit up on that one too, but we didn't know it. <laughs> so it's this dance between 
you verify the breaking stuff because you don't want to hang your reputation on someone you don't know. You just don't want to repeat stuff. Um, but in some cases, like if it's an important person tweeting something, you have to report it. Uh, uh, he reads Daily Coast every day, which is a, a liberal blog um, that has a lot of thoughtful stuff on it. I, that's my first stop every day for politics. Well, it's not my first stop, but it's one of my first stops, Be, particularly because of the morning, um, the morning campaign roundup. So I get to know in the states that I care about who's going to run for office, who's not running for office. It's, it's a good source, even though it is, it's clearly left-leaning. Wildly left-leaning, right? But they don't make secrets about it. So to balance out your media diet, read the National Review. Read redstate.com. I mean, if your blood pressure can handle it. <laughs> redstate.com. I mean, you look reasonably healthy. I mean, you are a Dodgers fan, but you look reasonably healthy. <laughs> okay. In the back. Oh, here's what, here's what you learn like the first week you work at the AP. Be first, but first be right, right? Or as I have schooled several generations of AP reporters, you can lose your job if you're first and wrong. You will never lose your job if you're second and right, okay? Guess who killed Gabby Giffords? By the way, Gabby Giffords is not dead. NPR and Reuters killed her. We didn't. We waited because the, the reporter on the desk in Phoenix, who I hired, thank you very much, um, recognized what was happening between those two news agencies. NPR thought it had it right and, was, and it was using a source that was not in a position to know. Key phrase. You only use sources who are in a position to know. Reuters heard the NPR broadcast and went with it because they trusted NPR, which is not a bad instinct, except something that important, like killing a congressman, woman, critter. You don't do it unless you have it yourself. So that's our standard. Don't go till you know. he's the president of the United States and what the president of the United States says moves markets, changes foreign policy. It isn't right and we say that in the stories. Do you read the wire every day, everything we move? Then you're not in a position to tell me that we don't do that. We do that. Right, well I can't. I can't speak for other news organizations. I speak for the one I work for. And when he says something that's incorrect, we say, there's no facts to support this assertion. We say it all the time, every time. I don't know what to tell you, pal. That's what we do.
it's not, you know, you're, it's an ivory tower, you're reporting the truth, that's bullshit. You're giving equal time to crack minds well, that are totally, let's, totally, let's please not have that Okay, but you're giving equal time to people who are saying false things, and you're not, we're going to back that out. We're going to go ahead and back that out. Okay, I get, I get the point. I understand what you're saying. Yes. Um, I was wondering what you do in, uh, in your guidance to uh, your reporters about sources and verifying anonymous sources. And there's a lot of discussion right now about mm. coming out with uh, a source that's not named. So here's our rule, and it's, it's very similar to the what... All right, she wants to know what our rules are around using anonymous sources. So here are our rules, and they're very similar to what the New York Times and the Washington Post do. Could you also say sources? Well, it's all the, really all the same, yeah. The rule is, if you're going to use an anonymous source, you, has, you have to have asked to get them on the record and been denied. You have to have looked for another source who can confirm the information on the record. The information you're using has to be factual. It has to be a fact, not an opinion. And here's the, the phrase again, the person you're using has to be in a position to know this thing they are saying. Those are ironclad rules. No anonymous source gets on the wire without meeting that standard. And there, there's some illusion out there in the world that we enjoy using anonymous sources. We don't. The use of an anonymous source represents a failure on our part, but a failure we have to live with because that's the way so much news has to get reported, particularly out of that, out of Washington, D.C. So is, is there, um, what's the verification step? Like you have this person saying blah, 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 they're in a position to know. What do you do about going and verifying? Well, a lot of that is the judgment of the beat reporter, right? The, beat re the, the reporter on the beat, the White House is a good example, or Congress, has covered the beat, knows this thing that he or she is hearing, sounds legitimate, may have heard it from another anonymous source, and um, is comfortable putting it on the wire, and describing the anonymous source as detailed as possible. That's why you see language in news stories like a source close to the president, a source who was in the room when the decision was made, a source with a history with this, uh, with this topic. You see those, that qualifying language. It's not qualifying language. It's an attempt to tell the reader we could go this far with the source. And that's a negotiation with sources. Can I say this? Can I describe you this way? It happens all the time. It happens a thousand times a day in D.C. Mr. Smith in the back. How you deal with children with this topic? Well, I would say, well, kids that you deal with, middle schoolers, things like that. I would say, stay curious, stay open-minded, read everything you can get your hands on. Don't be afraid of reading things that trouble you or that that break your that go contrary to your preconceived notions. That's called learning. Just expose them to as much news and current events as they're comfortable with. Because that's, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14, you're learning how to be a news consumer.
Well, you identify fake news, uh, first of all, by understanding who good sources are. I, I guess my attempt here was to define it in the negative way. If you're me, if you're a professional journalist, you tend to know fake news when you see it because it rings a bunch of different bells. Those bells are, first of all, how can this be true? Like, and that's why I use the example of Democratic Congress people not standing up during that speech. That can't be true. Human beings don't behave that way. If it's too good to be true, it's, it's probably not true, right? I mean, we have this cliche in the news business. If your mother says she loves you, check it out, right? <laughs> and if you knew my mother, you'd know how, you know. <laughs> so that's, that's one way. It's just to use your own horse sense. But another way is to develop a stable of, of sources that you know and trust and this is what's so pernicious about this decades-long campaign to vilify the mainstream media. You can't trust the New York Times. Are you kidding me? You can't trust the New York Times? You work beside these people. I've been beaten like a drum on breaking news stories by the New York Times. They're so good at what they do. Of course you can. <laughs> Yeah, that is a problem, and that's a technological problem. It's bad. Um, oh, so he's, he's concerned. Let me, uh, if I'm not being fair to your question, tell me. Um, he's concerned about, in part about uh, bots on Twitter and, and, and robots crawling the Internet who will uh, like things on social media and push them to the top of trending lists. And uh, that's a technique that propagandists use to uh, inject fake news into the news ecosystem, into the mainstream. Right? Is that fair? So, in part, that's a technical problem that uh, Facebook, in particular, is working on. One of the things that uh, Facebook is doing with the Associated Press, with Snopes.com, with ABC, and I want to say factcheck.org, is they are allowing those four news organizations to grade stuff that is questionable. That's stuff that we think is fake news. And so they're, they're allowing us to, to make a ruling on it and then they will flag it as questioned news in, in news feeds. So that's something they've just started this month and it's agreement, an agreement we made with them. Um, propaganda, what is propaganda? That's, that's kind of like the, the Justice Blackman pornography thing. You know it when you see it, right? It, is, it, is, it isn't just point of view opinion journalism. It, it goes beyond that. It tends to have a nationalistic strain. It tends to have a bigoted strain. Uh, these days it has a, an anti-Semitic strain or a white nationalist strain. This is propaganda. Right. It's, 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 um, it's, it's polemics. It's, it's produced by polemicists for a political purpose typically to vilify a group. That's the best I can do on that one. Yes?
I know. What, what the hell? <laughs> A, how did she beat us? <laughs> so what you did, that's a tough, this is a great example. This is a tough one. So it comes down to, do you trust this news source? Does the Associated Press trust MSNBC? Rachel's an interesting case because I want to hear what her sourcing is, okay? And she's uh, an opinion journalist. She's not like, you know, Peter Baker, who covers the, New York, the White House for the New York Times. If Peter broke it, we'd pick it up like that. Rachel, I don't know. Do you want to hang your reputation on somebody who makes a living as a point of view journalist? I don't know if you do. Is she credible? She is on, on many things. Yes, she is on many things, but it also comes with a point of view. And, and that has to be factored into your judgment. And, and it is a question of judgment. At the end of the day, these are human beings making subjective judgments about how best to report the news. So. But to answer your direct question about this specific case, uh, right now in the DC Bureau of the Associated Press, my friend Dave Scott is either dead on the floor or he's working his butt off <laughs> with his team to try to match this story, to try to figure out where she got that, who else has it, if it's credible, because Lord knows it is, this is a hot topic. It is easy to get this one wrong. And you don't want to be the guy who gets this one wrong. Oh, his question was, um, uh, tonight, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC says she has Donald Trump's 2005 tax return. What do you do when you get beat on a story like that? How do you match it? What's your strategy? Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of proud of the AP on this one. We started doing that in about 1998. We would put links at the bottom of the stories. This is a work in progress, and we're still learning on this. And now we're starting to embed the links in the copy. Right, and, and, and everybody's doing this. Um, and you're right. It's, I ha we just had a call about this yesterday with all the bureau chiefs and the D.C. Uh, bureau chief uh, and the executive editor, and it was, we described it as the show your work problem. You can tell somebody, particularly uh, if, you're if you've covered a beat and you can write with authority on that beat, you can just say, this thing happened and here's why it happened. And you don't need to attribute it because you're the reporter who's worked the beat. That's called writing with authority. But you've got to back it up with examples. You've got to show your work. And in copy linking is a great way to do that. No, no, I don't think we do. I think it's, it's a judgment thing. I mean, this is enough for the reader to have enough information. Yeah. 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 Yeah
Yes. Do you know this person? Do you have a personal relationship with this person? And that's something, one of the tr tricks of being a good beat reporter, whether it's covering the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office or, whether, or Congress, is you develop relationships with the people in that organization. That's called source development and working a beat. So you, you have a history with these people. And you develop a relationship where you know and, you're, and good reporters are very clear about this. I will agree to use you as an anonymous source in these ground rules because I trust you and I think you are in a position to know. If you burn me, I am going to tell the entire world what your name is. <laughs> right? There is a yin and a yang to these relationships. So that's, that's, the, that's how those conversations go. But again, at the end of the day, these are human beings doing a human job. And mistakes get made. And we use sources we shouldn't, which is why we say it has to be fact and not opinion. And even then we get it wrong and we get burned. So again, these are human beings doing a human job. Not perfect. Yes? Mm -hmm. If you go too far to the outside on the extreme on either end, aren't you more less likely to get the facts that back that that would change your, your thought process and more likely to be dismissive? Would you would you suggest staying within a certain boundary? Uh, she she was asking how do you if you go too far on either end of the political spectrum or, or just the ideological spectrum more broadly, don't you risk polluting your, your brain to the, to the point where you can't, you can't discern truth from, from hoo-ha, right? From, from crap. The hoo-ha-ha, yeah. So here's, here's what I would say about that. If you're not reading the New York Times, what's wrong with you? Seriously, what's wrong with you? Or uh, the Wall Street Journal, which I know their editorial page is conservative, but the reporters are just solid, spot on. It's a good newspaper. If you're not reading Associated Press dispatches in your local newspaper or on the web, my colleagues are very good at what they do. We don't have an opinion page. We, are, we try to be right down the middle, right? So you should spend most of your time on those credible news sources. You should expose yourself on either, uh, to stuff on either end, though, to provoke thinking and to learn things you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. That's, that's where you expose yourself to serendipity. I didn't know this. I didn't know this history about the conservative movement. I didn't know that this was the core argument about health care on the conservative side, or this is the history of universal health care in other countries. You may not get that every day from a mainstream news source, but you might get it from the National Review or from Daily Coast. You might. And that's why you should, do, you should be a voracious, hungry, curious absorber of facts. Because not only does it make you delightful at cocktail parties, it makes you a better citizen. <gasps> yes? Um, well, could you just say a few words about your take on Sean Spicer and what that role is? Ah. <laughs> uh, 
She wants to know what I think about Sean Spicer and the standards he's supposed to be held to. Now, Sean is a, is a son of the biggest little state in the union, as am I, a Rhode Islander. Don't make me bust out this accent, because I will. Um, so, who remembers Richard Nixon? Who remembers, let's see, what was the name of his press secretary? Ron... Ron Ziegler. Ron Ziegler lied to the press in a briefing. Uh, he didn't mean to. It was an accident. He was told something by, I don't know, Halderman, Ehrlichman, John Dean, one of those chowderheads, who eventually all went to prison. Uh, and, and he lied, and he resigned. He resigned. That is the standard that I grew up with for White House press secretaries. If you, if you tell a lie and you mislead the American people, because that, it's a hard job. You are speaking to the American people when you stand behind that pulpit. Um, I, I'm not sure that that standard is a, adhered to so strictly anymore. There might be some wiggle room. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Yes. Uh, Judith Miller, God, what happened to Judith Miller in the New York Times? Wait, yeah. Well, that. Okay. So I'm going back in history here. This was Second Gulf War. She had a source. I want to say it was a State Department source who she protected, and it was. Uh, was this about Valerie Plame and Joe Wilson and, and uranium and yellow cake? She had a source. She had a source, and it came up in a court case or a, a, an investigation, and she wouldn't reveal her source. So she went to the Stony Lonesome for like six months. Um, actually, it was the Alexandria City Jail. It's not a bad jail. I've been there. <laughs> um, but she went. She was in jail in Alexandria, Virginia, the Eastern District of Virginia, U.S. District Court, uh, for about six months until they let her out. There were. She carried water for um, for Chalabi. Um, you remember how I said these are human beings doing job? Yeah, yeah. Whoops. Well, what can I say? Whoops. <laughs> Got it wrong. Got it wrong. Look, go back and read the original Whitewater stories in 1992 and 93. They got it wrong. The AP gets it wrong sometimes. Here's the difference between a real news organization and a fake news organization. A real news organization cops to the mistakes and corrects them. Yeah. That's it. And that's, when you're a young reporter, that's hard. I mean, I was, I don't know, what was like 26, 27 when I started at the AP? I made a mistake in a story that went on the national wire. That means it went everywhere. And it was a stupid mistake. And I wanted to shoot myself in the head. But older hands than me sat me down and said, it happens. Correct it. Move the corrective on the national wire. Eat it. Yum. <laughs> that's what you do. That's what you have to do. That, that's how you retain your credibility. And this just in, credibility is all you have. It isn't my scintillating good looks, and it isn't the AP style book. Those aren't my assets. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Kemper. <laughs> Anyone else? Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. But Facebook, while they're making some money off this trending news, they're not making the money like Google is from the incorrect and fake and propaganda news because of Google's ad click. Um, AdSense, yeah. So this is a great question because, as it turns out, Google is doing something. The question was, shouldn't Google take steps to uh, police the propagation of fake news? Google is doing something. They don't let uh, sites that have been identified as doing this, they don't let them use AdSense. But here's what's terrible. So AdSense is a great program. It's all those little ads that come up in your Google search and they get automatically populated on, webs on websites that you visit. Like you know how if you wanted to buy a socket wrench set from Sears and then for the next month all you see is socket wrench ads? That's, that's a lot of Google's uh, background. Uh, but these outfits that actually make money peddling fake news, they don't need AdSense because there are so many other remnant ad deliverers that they can make money off of. That, that they can work with that aren't as scrupulous as Google. So you identified a great problem, you're a day behind Google. And, and still it doesn't help. So, yeah. Oh, okay, one more. One more, in the back. <laughs> Who, oh, this is a great question. Uh, who, how does the AP deal with? How does the AP deal with statistics, or even more broadly, how do legitimate news organizations deal with statistics? You know why this is a great question? It lets me tell my one journalism joke. <laughs> it turns out that there are three kinds of journalists: those who can do math and those who can't. <laughs> Yes, yes, we have statisticians on staff, and we're actually uh, pretty pretty good with this stuff. Um, particularly in the area of political polling, there's a lot of polling out there that you that you never see the light of day on the, on the AP wire because it just doesn't meet our standards. In fact, very few polls anymore meet our standards, and we reevaluate them constantly. I mean, Quinnipiac is still in there. But man, its track record has been really fraught. Um, because it turns out traditional public opinion polling is really hard to do now and really expensive. And it's not that they're bad people, it's just hard. So that's, that's one example of how we uh, have specific standards about sample size, about the randomness of the calling, about questions, about the order of questions, that whole science of political polling. We have a polling director on staff who is preeminent in the, in the industry in the United States. Uh, so that, that's how we deal with it. Okay. Um. Just a quick note, our gratitude to Jim. You're awesome. Thank you for coming. And also, next month, we have Carl or Carol O'Meara. She is a master gardener. And she's going to talk to us about how to grow hops and tomatoes in our climate. A little change of pace. 
We try to keep it interesting. We hope we see you next month. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good night.